Hi guys and welcome to this week's episode of Recovery Talk. Today I'm going to talk about the Minnesota Starvation Study. For me, learning about the Minnesota Starvation Study completely revolutionized how I saw my own eating disorder in recovery and also how now I work with others. If you are someone with an eating disorder, in recovery from an eating disorder, or if you are someone treating eating disorders, I would argue that this study is one of the most important studies on the topic that you need to be aware of. And the funny part is, this wasn't meant to be an eating disorder study. It was actually meant to be a study on the effects of starvation and what is the best way to refeed after a period of famine. So let me start by just introducing the study a little bit. So the year is 1944 and physiologist Ansel Keys and also the psychologist Joseph Rosek are conducting a study on the University of Minnesota to look into what is the best way to rehabilitate someone who's gone through a period of starvation. So what they did is they recruited a group of 36 young healthy men to participate in this study and it is a study that lasted for almost a year so this is a long study and it is also a study that would not have gotten ethical improvement if it were to done in 2022 so it can't really be replicated if i were to go to my faculty and say that i wanted to replicate a minnesota starvation study i'd probably get kicked out of university <laughs> this was a very different time okay and also desperate times creates desperate measures right this was 1944 when they started this study and so you were in the end of the second world war where there was widespread starvation and one of the areas that Ansel Keys was looking into was how to best refeed soldiers or people suffering starvation. Anyhow, so he recruited 36 young healthy men and it is very important to emphasize the word young healthy men here. There was actually 400 people that applied to be part of this study, believe it or not. And the reason for this was that people were actually allowed to participate in this study instead of doing military service. That people who were, you know, opposed to doing military service instead could, you know, serve their country by participating in this awful human experiment. So 400 people wanted to participate and then they filter it down and picked the 36 healthiest ones mentally and physically. So they did not pick someone who had, you know, mental vulnerabilities or anything like that. They picked the healthiest one and they very carefully checked that they were healthy enough to, to participate in the study. Here you have this group of young, perfectly healthy, if anything, probably above average mentally and physically healthy men ready to get starved. So first there was a control period for like 12 weeks. And during this period, the men were, you know, not starved. They were just eating, you know, normal amounts for them. And the average was like 3,500 calories. Of course, with some individual differences. And I'm saying this because so many people think 2,000 calories is like what everyone eats. But that's just not true. These men, these perfectly young, healthy men were eating 3,500 calories and average uh, just, you know, to maintain their weight. So yeah, they were, you know, being served meals and supervised and just again, just to get a bit of a picture of what and how they normally eat and behave. And then the starvation happened. This was for 24 weeks. 
and for the starvation, the men were served approximately 1,500-ish calories. Let me repeat that. For starvation, the men were served around 1,500 calories. This is an amount that's often prescribed by traditional diets. And you may think, oh yeah, but they were probably exercising like crazy. No, like the exercise they did was walking on a treadmill. They were not doing some extreme forms of movement. As a result of this starvation diet, the men lost something like 25% of their body weight on average and 40% muscle. I think I said this in the previous episode that when you are, uh, you know, recovering from an eating disorder, hyper-focusing on, oh, I need to lift a bunch of weights to gain muscle, it's actually not a good idea because your muscles are already broken down and you are gaining muscle by weight restoring. And this kind of shows a good example. And equally, when you are starving yourself, your body is going to cannibalize itself from its muscle tissue, not just going to lose body fat. Okay, so now you have these men being starved. What happens? The men started behaving very, very strange. And this really surprised, you know, the experimenters. They started noticing really odd behaviors in their participants. It was not just their body that changed, it was their entire personality and behavior, simply as a response to starvation. So one thing they noticed was that these men suddenly became obsessed with food. They would start like collecting cooking magazines and just be exclusively interested in food. They were actually quite apathetic in general, the men, like their behavior were just very flat. But as soon as anything had to do with food, they would just be... <laughs> awake they would be like oh yeah super passionate and these were not men that had any like extreme interest in food prior this was something that happened during starvation some of the men even decided to become chefs that's how <laughs> significant the obsession was also they started developing very weird behaviors around food for instance they become super possessive over food and also they became very upset about food waste so if they saw someone else throwing away food they just throw a tantrum just bizarre behavior you know they would go through bins looking for food they would start toying with their food and like playing with the food on their plate and having a very weird way of eating really strange behaviors when they were eating you know like eating very slow or just obsession and kind of rituals around eating they also developed obsession with chewing gum and they actually had to put on limits on how much gum they could chew because they were just chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing. And their personality, as mentioned, just completely changed. You know, they became depressed and anxious. Some even developed severe mental illness. They became extremely socially withdrawn and just disinterested in doing social stuff. And also they really lost interest in, you know, sex and romance and just other people in general, things that they were normally passionate about, except for food. Also, some of the men developed binge eating, especially during the refeeding process, but some also during the active phases of starvation. They were like binge eat and then break down in guilt. And again, it's like, these were not people who had binge eating before, or, you know, who have any reason to feel particularly bad about binging, right? Keep in mind, this was a little bit before diet culture had really, you know, hit off. I'll talk a bit more about the binge eating bits just a little bit later in this episode, because I think that's also very relevant in terms of how it ties into extreme hunger. So overall, you have this group of 
previously perfectly healthy, insane man now suddenly acting freaking bizarre. And then the physical issues. The man developed a host of physical issues. Especially they developed a lot of digestive issues, stomach issues, gastrointestinal discomfort, sleep disturbances, edema, aka water retention. They became very cold and they started losing hair. Overall, not feeling so good. And this was, of course, interesting for, you know, the researchers to look at. You look at these physical side effects, like, oh, they're getting really cold. Oh, they are losing hair. But it was actually the mental effects and just the personality changes that completely blew them away. And then the refeeding begins. So now you had these men being starved for months, uh, not doing so well. And now they're finally starting refeeding. Now the men were divided into different groups, depending on the amounts that they will get during refeeding, the amount of calories they will be refed. That was essentially, you know, the original thought of the, of the study was to see which, you know, group is doing the best, which way is the best way to refeed. So they started low, but for some uh, some of them, you know, they started low and stayed low for some time, and other they started low and then went up a little bit faster. So that was essentially, you know, different groups, kind of seeing what is the best pace to refeed in. Interestingly enough, they saw that in the group that, you know, increased the slowest and just was like really staying at a low amount for a longer period of time, this group, they did worse in terms of their mood. They had had especially bad anxiety and depression. So that was figure out not to be the best thing. <laughs> they started off refeeding and monitoring, but then they noticed something interesting. And that was that as soon as they moved over to a more unrestricted way, you know, that they started, you know, they stopped telling the, the, the participants, oh, you can't eat more than this and that. They noticed that the participants started eating and eating and eating. They were eating 7,000, 8,000, 10,000 calories a day. And they reported just indescribable hunger like they couldn't control it they were just so hungry and they ate and they ate and they ate they ate until the point of extreme discomfort and also guess what a lot of them developed guilt and shame about this and a lot of them also developed issues with body image during you know the the refeeding process when they also of course needed to restore weight so now suddenly you have these people, these men that proves that no issues with body image, suddenly having poor body image in refeeding. And this quote unquote binging also really surprised the researchers because it was just so extreme. Let's uh, read a bit from the study and what it says and how it describes these binges. So quoting from the study. Subject number 20 stuffs himself until he's bursting at the seams, to the point of being nearly sick and still feels hungry. Number 120 reported that he had to discipline himself to keep from eating so much as to become ill. Number 1 ate until he was uncomfortably full, and subject number 30 had so little control over the mechanics of piling it in that he simply had to stay away from food because he could not find a point of satiation even when he was full to the gills. Subject number 26 would just as soon have eaten six meals instead of three. So after something like five months uh, of the rehabilitation process, 
most of the men notice that their eating patterns actually normalize. Even after like eight months time, some of the men were still eating more than they did before the study. Not to the same extreme amounts, but still eating more. And you see this very often with people with eating disorders, that there is an increase in hunger also afterwards. I posted about this before, but it is very common that metabolism rise, you know, after weight restoration and you need to eat more just to maintain that weight. And now to the weight part, because I know a lot of you are thinking, well, the men probably just gained and gained and gained and gained and gained. And that's actually not what happened. So most of the men, they gained back to their pre-starvation study weight with an additional 10% or so overshot. Then over the next few months, that overshot of 10% tapered off gradually. Then at the end of the follow-up period, they're pretty much back to where they were before the study. And now to a part that I find a little bit scary, and that is that this period of starvation, even though most of the men were able to you know, recover and get back with their normal lives, some of them developed actually disordered behaviors after the experiment. So some of them, they felt like they had to keep restricting to stay at a lower weight. Others described feeling huge during the weight gain process. As I mentioned earlier, the food interest for some people meant that they changed their careers to becoming chefs. Nothing wrong with being a chef. I'm not saying that everyone that works as a chef is food obsessed and starved. But it is a very interesting pattern to observe, right? Because you do see quite a lot of people who have or have had an eating disorder pursuing careers that have to do with food. So for instance, chefs, dietitians, etc, etc. This is not always a bad thing, you know. I know some wonderful dietitians that have had an eating disorder and use their experience in their work. They are amazing. And me myself, I'm working in the eating disorder field, not with food, but I'm working with eating disorder despite having experience around it. So it's not always a bad thing, but it is interesting. So why do I think this study is just so, so, so important? I think this study is crucial because it shows that so many of the symptoms of an eating disorder is related to the starvation state itself. And so many of those symptoms, those behavioral changes, actually normalize with refeeding. And why does this matter? Well, it matters for a few reasons. First of all, imagine you are entering treatment for an eating disorder and you have extreme rigidity, right? Different types of psychotherapy focusing on rigidity can probably make you just feel more confused and lost. Imagine you're, you're digging into your childhood. Why are you so rigid? What control mechanism is this? You know, and you start doing all sorts of things. And then actually the cases that the rigidity started with the restriction, you weren't really rigid before. The rigidity just so happened to pop up as you started restricting. And then, of course, no amount of psychoanalysis of what you did when you were five years old is going to really solve it because the actual issue here is the restriction. And this is not to say that every symptom of an eating disorder is due to the starvation. Of course not, but a lot of them are. And another reason why I believe it's so important to be aware of this is that very often people with eating disorder will confuse their symptoms with their personality. So they would think, oh yeah, I just have a very rigid personality. I'm just very interested in food. I just like being alone all the time. This is just who I am as a person. And then actually it turns out it is a side effect of undernourishment, not your personality. 
Of course, there are people whose personality is, you know, preferring to be alone. I'm a huge introvert. I've been like that my whole life. But I can reassure you it worsened during my eating disorder. I was just, I had no interest in connecting with anyone. No interest in nothing. And now, even though I'm still an introvert, I actually do feel like connecting with other people and having meaningful relationships. But during my eating disorder, my only meaningful relationship was with my eating disorder. And I think this is just so, so, so important. You need to untangle yourself from the eating disorder and being aware of what is primary and what is secondary. And I know this can be so terrifying for people with eating disorders because very often you may have built an entire identity on some of these traits. So I see this a lot with clients. They might have built an identity about being the vegan who never wastes food, loves movement and and doesn't need anyone and is completely hyper-independent and don't want a relationship. Again, not saying these traits are always due to starvation, but again... It is a little bit of a coincidence, right? And again, this study shows that there is a big connection here. So then when you enter recovery, you might find that, oh my God, I'm not who I thought I was. And that can sometimes be a bit difficult because now you're letting go of not just eating disorder, you're letting go of things that you thought was integral to your personality. But I also think it can be a bit of a, what can I say, a relief to know these things because If your extreme rigidity and food obsession, all of these things, everything was just part of you and it had nothing to do with restriction, then letting go of restriction would be harder. If you know that it is actually consequence of restriction, and then can maybe be more motivation to let go of the restriction. And also the eating disorder just loves presenting itself as this exciting, fantastic thing, as this special talent, as you being this unique, uh, what can I say, this unique, fragile bird. Like, look at some of the languages used to describe eating disorders. It's quite romanticizing, you know? When I think of eating disorders, sometimes it's described as this, like, ballerina jumping around lightly, this fragile, beautiful suffering. I know that was just a lot of words, but I think you get the image, right? The eating disorder loves romanticizing itself. But when you kind of reduce it down to a starvation response that is actually very similar in a lot of people, it kind of loses some of its appeal, right? It's suddenly not so interesting anymore. Suddenly not so special anymore. It's just a Good old side effect of not eating enough. And again, and I know I said this many times, I know it's not always that simple, but I do think it helps to demystify it. And I am hugely skeptical to a lot of the language that's being used to describe eating disorders, especially anorexia nervosa, both by mainstream media and also even by practitioners. I feel certain language, this very poetic language, just really helps romanticize it, which then again makes the suffer feel like they have some unique, beautiful, sad story, talent whatsoever going on. And actually it's very unglamorous. And also eating disorders are boring. They're uncreative. You think you're so unique and then you realize that everyone else is also collecting spoons. Not sure if I mentioned that, but in the study, a lot of the men started like collecting like spoons and kitchen utensils. And that's so funny to me because I did the exact same. I remember like I was just so dead inside until I went to like a homeware store and I was looking at spoons and cups and I had very specific spoons and cups that I had to use. I was just so excited by those goddamn spoons. Jesus Christ. And like, is that a quirky personality trait or is it you really needing to eat Big plate of pasta bolognese with cheese on top. Repeatedly. If you are a practitioner listening to this podcast, first of all, I want to give you like a little bit of a thumbs up for 
you know, seeking out psychoeducation in the field of eating disorders. A lot of practitioners are very like, oh yeah, I know it all. I don't need to like read anything or listen to new science or information and can almost be a bit arrogant, you know. So you being here and listening and wanting to learn more to do better for your own clients, I can already tell you are a great practitioner because curiosity, I think, is the best, one of the most important traits for a good practitioner. Anyways, anyways, what I want to tell you is just something to be mindful of is be mindful when you have a client with an eating disorder. Be mindful of, quote unquote, diagnosing certain parts of their behavior as separate to the eating disorder when it could be that it's actually a side effect of the eating disorder. So for example, social isolation. You may assume that there is some kind of avoidant attachment style going on here, social anxiety, maybe the person is asexual, which is a completely legitimate orientation. But again, it can also be a side effect of starvation. I had a wonderful conversation with my brother-in-law and my sister about this. My sister is a psychologist specialized in eating disorders and my brother-in-law is a psychiatrist. We spoke about the importance of recognizing when something is primary or secondary. For instance, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Some people have OCD and no eating disorder. Some people have OCD and then later develop an eating disorder. But there are also some people who develop OCD as a result of their eating disorder, as a result of being undernourished. And I was talking with them, you know, my, my sister and my brother-in-law, about the importance of knowing the difference. Because if you don't, there can be a lot of bad things happening in terms of the way you treat it, right? Maybe you'll start medicate OCD when actually the solution was, you know, that pasta bolognese plate that I mentioned earlier. And thankfully, a lot of practitioners are aware of this, especially now, but they were also admitting that not everyone is. And I also think it can be a massive relief for the person to know that certain things they are experiencing is actually a side effect of undernourishment and will improve with refeeding. It can also really help motivate recovery. I'm just thinking for myself, if I didn't know these things, I would think the following. Well, so I am very, very rigid, I'm obsessed with food, and I don't want anything to do with other people. Then why should I bother recovering? Because an eating disorder fits my interest a lot better. But because I knew about studies like this one, and also the experience of other people who have bravely shared their stories online, I knew that there was a pretty good chance that these traits would actually lessen with recovery. And they did. I keep quoting Snickers all the time. <laughs> I'm not sponsored by Snickers, but I mean, it's really good chocolate though. But you know their slogan is you're not you when you're hungry? It is just summing up an eating disorder, isn't it? And I also am aware that when I'm talking about these things, a lot of people are going to have a bit of a defensive reaction. Especially if you had an eating disorder for some time and it's become a big part of your identity. You may think that a lot of these traits is just who you are as a person. And I really want you to sit with some of that discomfort. Ask yourself this question. What would it mean for me if some of these symptoms and some of these behaviors and personality traits that I'm experiencing were actually a side effect of my eating disorder rather than me. What would that mean for me, for my life, for my recovery? Is it scary? Is it a relief? Sit with those feelings. Explore those feelings. Maybe even it could be something very good to bring up if you're in therapy. And I know that not all therapists knows about, you know, the impacts of starvation on human behavior because especially if someone is a psychotherapist it's not really part of their training it's not really part of the the lens that they're 
taught to view eating disorders in. But the good ones will be willing to read an article and check out a study. So actually bringing it to a session like, hey, I've I've been really researching, you know, how starvation affects human behavior. And I'm wondering if some of these traits that I think is a part of me is actually just a side effect of my eating disorder. And that makes me feel X, Y, Z. And then you can kind of explore that because these can be heavy feelings. Imagine if you built, you know, a career and image and everything on certain behaviors. And then you realize, oh my God, I don't think this is me anymore. And I see this so often with clients. They have built their identities on certain things that they later on realize this is not them. And it takes a lot of bravery to admit that. But I also want to remind you that it is never too late to change the direction of your life. It's never too late to rediscover yourself, to filter out what is me, what is eating disorder, to try new things. Just because you have been a person doesn't mean that you need to be that person forever. I think for me, one of the most fascinating things about my job is seeing the difference in someone when I start working with them as, you know, a client because I'm an eating disorder recovery coach and also towards the end when they are doing a lot better and they're off on their own or they're fully recovered. And I don't mean the physical changes because the physical changes, I mean, sometimes they're visible, sometimes they're not. It's not really something I think about a lot. But I mean the behavioral changes and the personality changes. It is incredible. They will just be so much more present, so much more passionate, and so much more themselves. And they just have a newfound interest in life. And that's so beautiful, like an interest in life beyond food, beyond weight, beyond exercise, and also beyond recovery. So I encourage you to give refeeding a chance. Not just refeeding, also challenging your fear, you know the importance of that as well. Trusting your body and discovering who you are outside of this illness. Anyways guys, I hope you enjoyed this and now it's time for me to take a listener question. Today's listener question is about nutrition drinks. So essentially, you know, those little bottles, I think some of them are called Ensure, Fresu Bean, Nutri Drink. Different countries have different drinks. The person is asking what my opinion are on these drinks and using them in recovery. I feel like these drinks, they get a lot of flack. <laughs> they get a lot of flack. And my answer is that I think for some people it can be a very, very helpful tool in recovery. But if you are someone who find these drinks a safe food and you use them instead of challenging your fears, then challenging your fears more is very, very important. So why do I think these drinks can be helpful? Well, I think they're helpful because recovery is, even though it is of course also about challenging the fear foods, doing what feels wrong, it is also about, you know, that nutritional rehabilitation, aka you need to get the calories in. You can challenge your fear foods every day, but if you're not eating enough, then you're not really going to recover, right? Of course, also you can be eating enough, but never challenging your fears and wouldn't recover that way either. And these drinks can be very helpful because it gives you, you know, a lot of calories that are easy to drink, right? So you can just get it in, you get in the calories. And that's so, so, so important in recovery. People who say, oh, it's not about food. It's not about calories. That doesn't matter. That That's just wrong. You know, I literally, like I did this whole episode about how undernourishment affects you, right? And how important it is to get calories in. That's essentially what the Minnesota starvation study shows, right? So if you are someone struggling with getting the calories in, why not? You know, why not? 
they're essentially just a food or, you know, a drink giving you calories. It's fine. I used them in my own recovery uh, because, you know, it was difficult for me to get in all the calories, um, especially when extreme hunger had passed. So I used the drinks. I also would use a lot of like nuts, energy dense things just to get the calories in. And I just found the drinks quite helpful because I could bring it with me to school. I just bring with me a drink so I could have it as a snack. And I also think for a lot of people with eating disorders, they have a fear of higher calorie foods and of drinking calories. So actually challenging that can be helpful. Sometimes it's just like eating disorder mindset of getting the most out of the food, right? Someone might be like, mm, yeah, drinking the calories, I don't get enough out of my food. So I can't use calorie drinks. That is an eating disorder mindset, right? That is eating disorder scarcity mindset because you can drink your shake and have all the snacks you want. That's recovery. I do understand that a lot of people have bad memories with these drinks and if so, maybe they're not you know, the nicest thing for you to use because I know they're very commonly used in hospitals when someone is hospitalized for an eating disorder. I also want to remind you that you can kind of make your own high calorie smoothies as well. I did that because I got kind of tired of the drinks. I would make my own high calorie drinks, basically mixing like full fat milk, um, chocolate powder, peanut butter, banana, seeds, just mixing it together in like a thick smoothie. So yeah, overall, I, I think... I think that can be helpful for some people, but there is a big but here. If you are someone who is using them as a safe food, as a way to avoid other foods, then of course, I would strongly encourage you to challenge your fears, not use them instead of, you know, challenging yourself with a specific meal. You don't want to be the person who goes to a restaurant and you bring your nutri drink instead of ordering food, right? might bring your nutri drink in addition just to get in some more calories but again just be a bit mindful what does your eating disorder want here does your eating disorder love these drinks then maybe trying some other things could be helpful does your eating disorder hate these drinks maybe implementing them could be helpful i always say you know if you're unsure if something is a good or bad idea kind of Think about what does the eating disorder want here. And even if they are a safe food, there are certain times where they can still be helpful. You know, imagine if you are in hospital struggling to get enough food. They are quite convenient. But you also want to come to a point where you're not completely dependent on them forever, right? So overall, that is my opinion on nutrition drinks. Short summary, it depends on the person. But I do think that they can have some value as long as they're not being used as a, you know, safety food and a way to avoid challenging yourself i hope that answered your question and also guys i really hope you enjoyed this episode i was very excited to record this episode just because for me this was so transformative learning about this study and i hope you found it if not transformative maybe at least like mildly interesting <laughs> And if you are enjoying this podcast, I really do appreciate when you are sharing it, you know, with a friend, with a family member, with a practitioner, or sharing on social media. That also makes me very happy because then you can kind of spread the word. If you find it helpful, chances are somebody else might find it helpful as well. And it also makes me happy to see that more people are enjoying my podcast. I hope you have a lovely day. And if you're interested in learning more about the Minnesota Starvation Study, you might be able to find the whole thing actually on Google. Just Googling Ansel Keys Minnesota Starvation Experiments and you should have it come up.
I will warn you, it's a little bit heavy. It's a quite an old study, but it's still very interesting. Have a lovely day, week ahead, and I will talk with you guys again very soon.